take our Bibles and take up and read at Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read the first 21 verses, though the entire chapter records the event of the, what we call the first synod or council of the churches, meeting together of churches to decide certain matters of no little import. And the passage after we read relates especially the communication of the decrees of synod to the various people and churches among the Gentiles, and that's significant as well. To this, we're going to be referring as we refer to the main body of the Declaration of the Synod in, in Acts 15, 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Thus far we read this account of the 
deliberation of the great synod of Jerusalem in the first century AD. And as I said, the rest of the narrative is the, the fallout, no, the, the delegation communicating the decrees of the synod to the Gentiles and people rejoicing that God had so decided for them and given them this gospel of liberty in Christ. Beloved, the reason we consider this passage and this first synod of the Church of Christ, as we call it, the first synod, is because we as United Reformed Churches meet this week at synod. And we're meeting this week for the first time in four years due to the um, the debacle of COVID and the government restrictions on travel, we have not been able to meet together normally as we do every other year. And now, so it's been the fourth year since we've met, 2018 uh, till now. The Synod, we should remember, is the broadest assembly of the Reformed churches. Meetings of Synod are required by our church order, adopted by the Great Synod, of Dort in 1618 and 19. Purpose of the Synod, this broadest assembly, is to deliberate on matters spiritual and ecclesiastical that pertain to the doctrine, the practice, the worship, the mission, and the life of the Church of Christ. As individuals, individual churches, and as a federation of United Reformed Churches and her sister churches worldwide, with whom she has one form of communion and communication or another. Synod 2022 promises to be the same according to the 357-page agenda that I've received and I've been trying to digest these weeks. It convenes and delegates from the churches, including ours, convene to represent us, and delegates also from at least a hundred churches that are in our federation, but also others who will greet us and, and welcome uh, and be welcomed by us as they communicate various things to our churches. We meet at uh, Buffalo, New York, Niagara Falls. It's called Synod Niagara. There we can be sure that important matters of doctrine and of life and of the church's mission work and discipline matters of individual churches will be considered something that needs to be settled uh, at the broadest assembly that could not be settled earlier on. The ecumenical relations are also a part of the synod's meetings, which will occur throughout the week, hopefully will be done by Friday night. And we, there's a special overture and which we should take special interest, I believe, as one of the most important overtures with regard to pastoral advice on the relation of church and state and family. So that's the Synod of the United Church Reformed Churches. And for this, we want to consider the first synod ever of churches and to see not only how we measure up in our meetings and in the content of our meetings, but to learn something so that if we don't measure up, we can ally ourselves with the, the matter and the manner of the deliberation of the church at, of Jesus Christ in the first century. 
For surely there's something from the Word of God with regard to this first ever meeting of churches and just about, if not the only meeting of churches that's recorded in the New Testament. Something there's here from the Holy Spirit for us to hear and to put our ears to the ground with regard to so that as we travel to Niagara by uh, car, we should be traveling to the Word and from the Word by faith. And surely there's something here for us to learn about especially three things. And first of all, the matters we are to consider. What is the content What was the content of the First Synod and and is ours to reflect that? The matter of the First Synod, of course, was the gospel and and how and to what degree does ours reflect that and that we're not simply going down this avenue or that and, and really distracted in all of our deliberations from the main thing of the gospel. And then there's the manner of deliberation and truly this was blessed of the Holy Spirit as we read in Acts 15, so that there was a peaceableness and a unity where there could be unity, even though there was a clash with regard to the leaven of the Pharisees. And then there's this matter of authority, the authority of the synod of the first century. How does that measure up to the authority of our synods? There's some people who think that synods have all the authority, in fact, that they speak almost infallibly and that no one can protest ever the decrees of such a broader, which people call a higher assembly. Others imagine there's no authority given to broader assemblies. Leave that with the local church, and so we ought to deal with that uh, because we want to be found, uh, according to Acts 15, uh, understanding there is a real authority and yet there's a great liberty in yielding to this authority of a broader assembly that's for the peace and unity and advancement of the Church of Christ. And so to the first synod we go. It's like a template for other synods, I believe, and the godly behavior of apostles and elders and other delegates is to be uh, um, mirrored in, in our behavior. The humility, that's striking here, the Christ's word-honoring deliberation that it was, all should be followed by us at Synod so that we go and that we come away. And as it was the reaction of the first people of God who heard this to the deliberations of the first Synod, so may it be ours. We can say, as a result of Synod 2022 of the URC, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us as well, who agree with this God, the Holy Spirit. So we want to consider the first synod, and first, that there was no small dissension there. Secondly, that there was one great decision made there. And finally, that this is for many, and was to be for many, happy delegations, that is, future synods, including ours. About the dissension and the inspired word tells us that there was no small dissension that arose between Paul and Barnabas and certain men who came from Judea. Let me read that in Acts 15. Certain men came down from Judea and they taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question, this dissension. This is uh, of great import here, of no small dissension, yes, indeed. Uh, That's almost an understatement. The apostolic message was at stake. In fact, it had to do with all of the basics, and I'm going to cite just five of them, uh, of the message we know as the gospel. Number one, this dissension had to do with salvation from sin, from its guilt, from its corruption, from the death of sin and the doom of sin, and salvation unto God and blessings that are in him. The key point of the discussion and dissension, however, had to do with the second point, the grace of God that brings this salvation and on which this entire salvation depends. Jew and Gentile was decided by the synod finally after the, or in the middle of the conclusion, they're saved in the same manner, that is by grace, verse 11, and we ought not to add to that any kind of requirement that men would require. So salvation from sin unto God by the grace or free merit of God alone And then what this had to do with is also the truth of the new covenant that God had established at Pentecost, the fulfillment of all of his revelation and promises that were to the Jews and also now in these latter days are presented to the Gentiles. And this is why James will quote from Amos uh, with regard to what's happening When the Gentiles are converted, it's a fulfillment of the word of God. So it's what's called the new covenant, as we shall see. So salvation by grace, and this having to do with what's called the new covenant. And then, of course, it's, it's all about Jesus. It's to the praise of Jesus and the wonderful sufficiency of his blood atonement. And finally, of course, this issue had to do with the praise of God. Who gets the praise, God or man? God who saves and God alone in Christ or man who helps himself. The dissension, in fact, have to do with all of these basics and all of them together. Certain men were teaching and exhorting that salvation was not only by faith in Jesus. They believed that there was salvation by faith in Jesus, but they had to be keeping on keeping the law. In other words, Christians and believers had to become Jews to be saved. You go back to the Old Testament ordinances, which no man could ever keep and which certainly didn't save one, but it was thought by these righteous, self-righteous Pharisees that we need to hold on to that law. If we don't do that, we're going to make the Jews offended not only, but we're going to be disobedient to God. This is no small thing. In fact, we read that these were powerful Jewish adherents in verses 1 and 5 who disputed with Paul and Barnabas. Imagine the nerve disputing with the apostle Paul and Barnabas who could strike you dead by a miracle. And then verse 5, we read that some of the sect of the Pharisees in Jerusalem who believed that as they believed in Jesus, they said, they rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It wasn't an option. 
And we're saying this is a commandment, commandment of us, not only, but of God himself. We cannot, in affirming Christ, deny Moses. Verses 24 and 25 says that these were those who went out from the Jews or from the Jerusalem church and have troubled people with words and they unsettled or subverted their souls. In fact, later on, we're going to read of the effect on the early church of these subverters of souls because the Jerusalem council didn't settle it. And Among the Galatians, Paul had to visit there and to tell them to be quiet and that if you begin in Christ, you can't end in the law. And also the Colossians had to do with these uh, adders to the law, the Ephesians as well, and the Romans. And so it was this leaven, this dangerous leaven that was an attempt to destroy and subvert the gospel when the people of God who believed it. In fact, we should know, beloved, that this teaching had ramifications not only then, but it does today. This denial of the gospel by adding to it is very common. It's a way that the devil would undermine the gospel little by little, one lie at a time. That's why it's so important for us to maintain the truth of grace, for example, and Christ, for example, and grace alone and Christ alone and faith alone, these solas of the Reformation. These are fundamental issues. This is the fundamental gospel. And if you add one peppercorn of righteousness of your own to that, you're a damned person. So I was talking with a friend this afternoon. If you would dare to be on your knees and claim for, uh, from God some reward for merit that you've performed, you're a damned man. You're not understanding the sufficiency of Jesus and his blood. And this is really the principal controversy of the ages. Who is Christ? What is he to you? What is he to the church? What's the gospel? What is the distinctiveness of the faith of our fathers in distinction from all other faiths? Who is this Jesus in comparison to the other Christs that are here and there and everywhere and people are pointing to them as the saviors of the world? What is this grace thing and what is this grace and the will of God by which we're saved? And what do we do with the free will of man, people are saying. And so they're saying, hold it. You can't have just grace alone. You have to have something of man because if you don't have something of man, man's going to just um, thumb his nose at grace and use free grace as an excuse to run wild and unholy. So grace and Jesus have been slandered as insufficient to save, and the controversy rages today in certain places, but mostly it's ignored by the churches. Liberal churches, for example, have no use for a controversy that raged 2,000 years ago. We're here to promote ecumenism and unity without any notion of being militant for the faith and what's all the fighting about and so on. But we must take this very seriously. At our synod, too. In fact, 
if our synod is not principally about the gospel, even though we're not fighting about it, perhaps at this synod, we should go home. If our synod is not about the gospel, what are we doing? If it's not focused on the gospel, if we're distracted by other issues, if it's all about adding things to the church order that make it look nice and look like we're doing work and so on, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I have fears about this. I'll mention them later. But here you have this this occurrence led by the Holy Spirit and recorded in the Bible for us of this first meeting of the churches over this principal thing, and we must heed it somehow, and we must ourselves stay focused. What was being vigorously debated was the truth of how God works and fulfills his word. The Gentiles were being gathered in. The grace of God in Christ was fully manifest, and the glory of that grace in the one incarnate Son of God. The things of liberty of the gospel and our unity in him, the the name of Jesus And Paul and Barnabas, who were men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus, verse 26. These were the things that were being discussed and had to be upheld, or the church would go astray, and she wouldn't be of any use to us anymore, the church, because it will have started wrong and we will have been heirs of something false of a leavened sort of gospel, which is no gospel. And then, of course, the whole authority and integrity of the word of God would be compromised. But it's not. We have here a foundation. In the gospels, Jesus lays it out. In the epistles, these things of which Jesus spoke and all of the history of the old and new covenant are signified indoctrinated for us, and we are led by the Spirit into all truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. Here at the first synod, there's this meeting, and this is what concerned the godly men who hazarded their lives for Jesus' blood and the worth of his atonement. Here is something that we have said is all about tulip, total depravity and unconditional election and so on, and that's good and important. But beloved, even before that, it was, it was totally Christ, which TULIP must be, all our doctrines must be, and you can, in fact, interpret TULIP that way. Here's another explanation of the T and the U and the L and the I and the P. Totally Christ, unconditionally Christ. The lovable, lovely Christ, the irresistible Christ, and the preserving Christ, our shepherd. That's tulip. That's our faith. Beloved, what's Jesus to you? Who is he? Not just what. Who is he to you? And who is he to me? See, this is the controversy. This is the thing that's at stake, the the one that's at stake, the reputation of the Son of God. 
Would it be upheld? Or would somehow the synod decide, you know, this, the Pharisees got a point. They, they got a point. We got to involve people somehow in salvation, and not just to be saved, but to participate in it. Got to do that. And that's how we've always th- seen things. And we did sacrifices and we circumcised and we did all of this and that. And this has got to be also the way of the church, isn't it? It's always the question. How can it be that God is God and he receives me on the basis of another and without anything in my hands bringing anything to God? How can that be? That's not the transaction I know in the marketplace. That's not how I live and reward my children, at least it seems to be. I just reward them when they do well and all of that. But here's this gospel. Here's this thing that people aren't getting. And I don't get. Because I know I demerit before God. I just come and I present my demerit. Got to be that he wants me to merit something. Jews had 613 commandments and prohibitions. Now we have 614. All those 613 and faith in Christ, that's the 614th. So we got it all covered. We got Moses, we got the prophets, and Jesus. See, it all fits. You can imagine that these believing Confessing, believing Pharisees were saying. They were trying to give credit to Jesus. And they completely discredited him. Because the fact is, as Paul will say, if Christ is, or if you're circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. If we preach Christ crucified, and you... Together, Christ the pilot, you the co-pilot, flying the ship, flying the plane. We're going to crash. And we have no gospel. Except you say it's the gospel of God helping those who help themselves. The matter of the gospel was here. Vital for all ecclesiastical gatherings that would follow, for all local congregations, and for poor, sinful souls like yours and mine. Do you, do you, do you sense the height of this thing? And there's probably a lot more that went on here. You can look in Galatians chapter 2 and about a visit with Paul and the confirmation of Paul and things going on here beside the scenes, behind the scenes. We don't have time to consider that, but... You wonder, Dort, they met for almost two years or parts of two years. Was taking a long time, you think? Maybe not. We don't know. Here they are. And whatever it is, it was a great decision. Second point, 
The first synod stood on the gospel word, the rock, Jesus, the truth of the new covenant, the gospel of grace. Isn't that beautiful? It was all there. What a great beginning. Peter, let me go through some of the things that were said here. Acts 15, 7 through 11. Apostles and elders came together to consider this matter of the Jews, the Pharisees, wanting circumcision to be necessary and to keep all the law of Moses to be necessary even for those who confess Christ. The apostles and elders rode up, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, probably referring to Acts chapter 10, where Peter receives a vision, and the vision of the unclean animals, and there's this, this, uh, this curtain that's in the air, and the vision says, rise, Peter, and, and eat, and so on. Peter protests this, but he's told that he must do this, and the significance of this is that there's going to be this mingling of clean and unclean, this Cornelius and his household are saved, Gentiles are saved, and this is the opening of the door, as well as the opening of the mind of the Jew, Peter, to the scope of the salvation of God. So, men and brethren, you know, a good while ago, it must have been that God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. So now his objection, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What a great testimony. Just a comment about this. You have here Peter speaking, not the Pope. The Pope would have stood up right away. Peter waits. There had been much dispute before Peter rises up. And Peter's not saying, thus saith me, the vicar of Christ here. He's pointing to what happened to him and to what the Holy Spirit was evidently doing through him. There's a humility about Peter here. He's not seeking to be first or second or anyone in anything but a servant here. Contrary to the papal, uh, the, the Pope and the, the papal synods and conventions that meet, this was no hierarchy. This was a service of the gospel meeting. And then you have all the multitude keeping silent and listening to Barnabas and Paul, verse 12, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. There's something there, isn't it? Paul and Barnabas, apostles, at least Paul was in the official sense of the word, but Barnabas was a kind of apostle. He's called that in another place. And they listened to them, who corroborated the, 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 the testimony of Peter, so that they understood that by the vision that God spoke through Peter and, and by the fact that God was converting the Gentiles and through them doing many miracles and wonders and so on, 
that this is true. These people among you now, probably at Jerusalem and certainly at Antioch from which they'd come, they're already saved. And those who are already saved don't need to get saved again. Those who are saved by grace and who say, glory, hallelujah, to God. Do you know that for you? You don't need to do something. In fact, if you do something and you try to earn something after that, you're, you're betraying what you said you believe, that you're saved by grace alone. So Paul and Barnabas, they're declaring the same thing. And the whole assembly was silent before them. Isn't that amazing? You know, at our synod this week, as at other synods, there's people who have something to say. You've got to listen to them. Listen, and you're silent. There's other people who just want to say something. That's different. Point is, we've got to listen to everybody and see when people have something to say about the gospel and about things that pertain to the welfare of the churches in the light of the gospel. And if there's no controversy, and, and I don't anticipate that there would be on gospel things, certainly not as, as important as this, there's no discussion of the federal vision, for example, as there has been in past synods. Nevertheless, there's something gospel that must be in every deliberation, for example, the mission work of the churches, and something of humility that says, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to wait till others talk through and, and come to their conclusions, maybe, and add my two cents, so that there's this together testimony in the support of one another in things that matter. So that when people stand for the gospel, I'm going to stand too if I have something to say. And so we'll be united and, and the Holy Spirit will confirm what we're doing by our united testimony. But James then speaks up and so they have a word from a vision. They have word through the wonders and miracles confirming the word of Paul and Barnabas. And now they have James, the brother of the Lord, in verse 13 through 19 adducing the Bible itself and saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, the elect, says the Lord who does all these things. And known to God, he says, from eternity are all his works. And therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from, turning, uh, those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is in God's plan, he's saying. God who knew the end from the beginning and that, yes, there would be among the Jews first the people of God. And, and now in these latter days among all nations and tribes and tongues, God's going to be glorified as the God who loves a world 
who says his own from this world to be the new nation under God. We write to them, he goes on, we should not trouble them, but we're going to write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So what's going on here in this great decision based on the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, James, and the word of God itself? Well, beloved, there's a lesson here for how things should be arrived at. And I just want to draw some lessons here. First of all, doctrine in the church was settled by churches, local churches, local leaders of churches, elders and apostles and brethren, we read here in this narrative. Not just individuals somehow got together in maybe some theological think tank and came up with an idea not just a seminary of hotshot, smart, scholarly men who do work on doctorates and so on and whose words are way over our heads, but churches, ordinary people and, of course, extraordinary apostles here, local churches who were willing to become local assemblies or not local maybe, but assemblies in Jerusalem, where there were, in seed form, rather official deliberations and decrees made with authority from God as we've worked this out over the 2,000 years of New Testament church history. There's something here that God is doing and that we have received from this doing of God in the first synod so that we can say, yes, this is good here. There is... An equality of office here, of apostles even, and of ordinary ministers and of elders. Nobody is saying, you know, Peter, he's speaking, you shut up now. And that doesn't happen at our synods either, you know. Nobody says, now you be quiet, you're not as important as the president of the synod. We all have a turn, we all have the Holy Spirit. Elders or presbyters with apostles unite and represent Christ in his church, to which he gives the keys of the kingdom. Besides that, it's not only ecclesiastical uh, assembly and deliberation, but it's certainly a biblical one. Apostles were apostles of the word. James proves his own apostleship by quoting the scripture Paul and Barnabas, men of the word of God, and Peter as well, men of the gospel for whom they would lay down their lives. There's a quoting of scripture, but also an interpretation of scripture here. And this, uh, so that there's an understanding that's given by the Holy Spirit in light of the New Testament of the prophecy of Amos, chapter 9. Amos spoke of God rebuilding the tabernacle of David from its fallen place. Now, in the New Testament, this is interpreted as the coming of the kingdom in the new dispensation when the kingdom of David will take a new form 
and there will be other people gathered, and the kingdom will be not of this world, not coming with observation. It will be a church of Gentiles calling upon the name of the Lord, gathering together in the name of Jesus, and having the Holy Spirit, and being mature, and the people that's come of age so that we don't need handwritings on the wall, and earthly things, rudimentary elements of this earth to signify spiritual things. No, it's all come to pass. There's a fulfillment of Scripture. There's a doctrinal pronunciation as well here, though it's not articulated so. It's right there. Salvation is by Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. Later on in the epistles, there will be the signification of this whole thing brought out by the inspired, inspiring spirit. And we are heirs of this. So there's an apostolic confirmation. There's a courageous deliberation. Look at this. You have these men, apostles and elders and others coming together, and they are striving against religious authorities. That is, people of the Pharisees who now believed and yet who had clout. And they had, they had some theological acumen, some great knowledge of the Old Testament, no doubt. And the apostles and the elders and the ordinary folk who were saved by wonderfully ordinary, beautiful, supernatural grace, they're taking them on. Knowing the truth as it is in Jesus, the truth in our hearts, the truth in the word, and everything which is life to me. I'm not going to budge an inch from that, they're saying. That's courageous. That's courageous. That's militant. I pray that you can be that way, beloved. It's part of the Heritage of the Reformed faith. We fight a lot. It's not just because we're contentious. But we want to preserve the gospel. Sadly, a lot of the fights are laced with pride. Not this one. Amazing how charitable this synod was, as well as doctrinal. They spoke and they all spoke and agreed with James who said that, okay, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles here. The gospel must remain the gospel. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, things strangled and from blood. And the reason being, Moses has Jews, Jewish disciples of Moses still, or maybe Christians who are still not really understanding the things of the Spirit. And we don't want to offend them. This is the idea. We, we understand here the things of the gospel, and, and we're so glad for this. And the Gentiles, they can understand this as well. They've never had to obey all kinds of laws. They were a law unto themselves, but... We go in now in the freedom of the gospel. We're not going to use that as an occasion to just show off our liberty in Christ. 
and perhaps offend the consciences of those who still think we have to do something or that what we're doing in our liberty is contrary to the law of God and would even lead me to sin. We don't want to give offense. So it seems that these four laws have to do with idolatry and sexual immorality and the forms of that that the heathen themselves would be practicing. And the heathen themselves, maybe they would eat things that Jews could not eat. They were filled with blood. Or they'd eat things offered to idols. And the synod said, don't do that. Don't do that. We need to be sensitive to these Jewish sensibilities. And so they agreed. They agreed. Again, we don't know exactly what these four requirements are referring to, either the law of the Jews somehow or that mingled with the law of the, pagan, the, the practice of pagan idolatry. But we do know that it was out of charity, not because they had to keep themselves from certain of these things. Of course, from sexual immorality they had to. But there was a largeness of heart here. It was something that said... We know Jesus, and Jesus has a large heart towards us, and so in things that don't matter, some of these, we're going to be gracious. We're not going to offend people unnecessarily. We want the gospel to be believed, after all, and not people to stumble over their own ignorance and their own prescriptions and their own tradition and superstitions and so on. We're going to get out of the way, as Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 9, to a Jew, I become as a Jew, to a Gentile, I become as a Gentile, to the weak, I become as weak. And beloved, this is exactly what we should be doing. And which should be the result of our synod. There should be some doctrinal gospel focus. And then this charity where we can love sinners into the kingdom. So yours truly comes back. And I rehearse to you what we've done. And you see it. This man was blessed there. He's more of a gospeler. He's more of a lover of God and of people for God's sake. And we'll all benefit. Seem good, finally, to the Holy Ghost and to us. Now, this is a statement repeated or, or said in verse 28. And they're delivering the message to the Gentiles, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols and so on. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now that is quite a statement. It doesn't mean uh, we think it was good to the Holy Spirit. We think that the Holy Spirit was pleased with this. That would mean God, children. God is the Holy Spirit the spirit of Christ in the working of salvation to apply it to us. Not saying here that we hope that it was good to God and it was a good decision. No, when it seems good to the Holy Spirit, 
It is good to the Holy Spirit. And it seemed good, they're, they're saying, because as we reflect upon this, this is what the Holy Spirit did. He included Cornelius and the, 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 the centurion's household in the salvation of God. He, he included in Paul's and Barnabas' missionary journey the Gentiles and confirmed this by signs and wonders, uh, affirming the word and, and telling them that they had received the Holy Spirit. It was good to the Holy Spirit. Was all of these activities, were all of these activities, and it was good to the Holy, of the Holy Spirit to write through Amos that there's a word for this. There's a plan from the God who knows everything, A to B and B to A, forward and backwards, because he's God, that tells us it's good to the Holy Spirit that these things have happened. And now we're just thinking about this, and of course we agree. It was good to the Holy Spirit, and as we think about it, reflect upon it, and believe it, it's good to us too. Whatever's good for God, good for me. You too? If it's good for God, seems good to me too, doesn't it? Seems like an understatement. I take it, though, as a bit of humility. These people are saying to the Gentiles, not thus saith the Lord, and this is this infallible decree of a council. But this is what we've been led to believe here. Maybe you can try to prove us wrong here. I don't think you can. We believe this is the will of God. And so they're presenting this in this winsome sort of way. Seemed good. This is really throughout. If you look at verse 10, then it pleased the apostles. It seemed good to them. Seemed good to us, verse 25. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, verse 28, 34. It seemed good to Silas to remain there. I think seeming good to people. There's one way that you can translate that. Just, you know, seems good, but it's only in appearance. But this is rock solid perception and understanding of things. And so we can be sure that this was of the Holy Ghost. And that's why it's pleasing to us. They gave God the glory. Everybody yielded. There was great joy, verse 31. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And the encouragement there is the same word from which we get the paraclete. The paraclesi is what they received from the Holy Spirit who is behind these proceedings. Now, this is very important, I say, in conclusion for our synod. That it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How's that going to happen? As I indicated before, it has to be that as we're focusing on the gospel and don't get sidetracked from it. Now, why am I saying that to you? Well, I'm saying it to me, but I'm praying that you would pray that. In this 357-page document, it seems to me a lot of minutia, and I'm not complaining now, though I have to read it, but I'm suggesting that it could be a real problem that we just get into housekeeping here and forget the house. 
or we can wallow in this bureaucracy that can be in federations and broader assemblies, and we forget to swim in the sea of the gospel. So we don't want to be distracted. You see, doctrinal controversy against the truth is bad. Distractions leading away from the truth are bad too. So these things that are necessary, and they're part of running an organization, you could say, let them not be the main things. And you pray about that, will you? You pray that I don't be a part of the distraction, or that any kind of overture that we adopt would not lead us into distraction, which I fear it might. If we have brought to or if we are swayed maybe by people who say we have another calling than bringing the gospel and that the church's mission includes something else besides that, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. May we not deviate one inch from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need the Holy Spirit and we who are on the other side of this act, this uh, first act, uh, and this first synod, must be praying for the Holy Spirit. Because we know um, he doesn't come automatically, as it were. That is, we have grace and we have the Holy Spirit, but we receive them for each synod in our asking, as our catechism reminds us in Lord's Day 45. For the Holy Spirit... Will you pray? I will pray. For grace, will you pray? I will pray. And that Jesus Christ be exalted, will you pray? I will pray. So when the votes are taken, the delegates come home, and it's discerned that the word of God has been upheld, all things done decently, in good order, and for his glory, You receive the decisions, will you, gladly, and rejoice for the consolation and the promises of God. URC meets this week at Synod. May God be with us as we travel to and fro and meet with us and direct us and give us to be a praise to him. And may this be for the unity of the churches and that we know our place in the kingdom. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us and make your face shine upon us because we need the light. and We need the light of your word of this first synod to shine upon our synod. We need the whole word to shine upon our synod. Bless our souls. We pray, Father, to be convicted ourselves of the need for Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, We pray not to be distracted by all the other things that can concern an organization so that we leave off the things that concern you. Hear our prayers and bless us and make it be so that the kingdom comes this week. That is, in every prayer, in answer to prayer, every deliberation, 
here at home, far away in Buffalo, New York, in hospital beds, and in our distresses, in our needs, and as we receive the grace of God to carry on. For Jesus' sake, amen.